Good morning. Welcome to LifePoint today. My name is Donnie Williams. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're here for the first time, just want to say welcome. Thanks for checking out our church. And I'd love to meet you after the service. We'll be down front afterwards if you could come down and say hello. Also say welcome to everybody watching on the screen at our other locations. Uh, you can do the same thing there as well. Well, we're in this series called The One, and we're talking about relationships, and we're looking at this particular story in the Old Testament. It's a love story between a guy named Solomon and his wife, who is never named. We'll just call her Mrs. Solomon. And this love story is told through poetry. It's told through song, and it's a very specific love story of attraction, of the pursuit of falling in love, of getting married, and even the wedding night. That's what we're going to talk about today. And so, if your kids are in here, this is PG-13. So you can take them over to LifePoint Kids. That's a better place for them to learn about Jesus on their level, and they'll never, ever, ever talk about sex. There's some Bibles coming down the aisles right now. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. Ushers will give you one of those. You can keep it. You can borrow it. Or you can also read along on the screen as I read from this story today. So a few weeks ago when we started in this story, since it's chronological, I'll just bring you up to speed. We talked about this idea of the one from the perspective of how do you become the one? Because if you're all messed up, you're going to be you're going to be at a great challenge to find the one. And so we started talking about where we all should start, and that's being the one. Being the one with character. Being the one who is honest. Being the one who has standards. Because if you have that, then the person you attract is going to be the one as well. So start not by looking for the one, but by being the one. And then last week, we talked about finding the one, the pursuit. Like when you find them, what do you do? What do you say? How do you act? And that's simple for many of us. It's, well, finding the one means that I wait. Finding the one means that I do my best to contain that excitement that comes from finding the one. And when I find the one before we're married, we need to understand that there are God-given boundaries in a relationship. So being the one, finding the one, and now we're moving on in the relationship after marriage, and today's about one-on-one. And it's all recorded in the Old Testament book of Song of Songs. Solomon was a man who lived about a thousand years before the time of Christ, and he and his wife set about to write down how they felt about each other and how their love progressed. So you have permission to giggle today. I'm going to read some verses that will make you laugh. It really will. Uh, I'm going to read some verses that you may have never heard anybody talk about in church before, but they're in the Bible, so we're going to read them. So you can get red-faced. I can't see that, so you're safe. Uh, You can laugh. You can clap. Whatever you want to do, but we're going to pick up this story right after they've declared their love for each other and their respect, and they've talked about their boundaries. It's their wedding day. And it starts with her speaking to her friends. There's a lot of times in this story where she speaks directly to her friends. And they're called daughters or women of Jerusalem in different places. And so she's talking to them about, hey, I found this guy and he is the one. Those of you who are married, when you found the one, I remember coming back and telling my roommate, I found it. I found her. She's the one. 
No question about it. She is the one. And I can remember having friends come to me and say, Donnie, I found the one. That's what she's doing. And all through this story, she turns to her friends and talks to them about her attraction to Solomon, her love for him, her plans for him. And in chapter three, verse five, she says this to her friends. Promise me, O women of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and wild deer, not to awaken love until the time is right. She's giving her friends advice. She's saying, you hear me talking about all this love and talking about all this attraction, but I want to warn you, don't jump into it before the time is right. And that's one of the worst things that we can do is jump into a relationship before the time is right. People who do that tend to make a lot of relational mistakes. People who do that end up marrying the wrong person. And when that happens, all the options out of that are difficult. Now guys, a lot of this is your fault, our fault. Because guys can fall in love like that. Like, you single ladies, you probably had a guy you dated for like three days and he was head over heels crazy in love for you and let you know that. Now guys, if that's you, come on. You don't know if you love somebody in a day or two. Yes, I do. I do. I really know. Maybe you don't even hear me saying that, but you don't know. So what she's saying is, hey ladies, cool it. Don't awaken love until the time is right. And then she goes on to say, and it's right for me. And she starts talking to them about her wedding day in the very next verse. She says this. Who is this sweeping in from the wilderness like a cloud of smoke? Who is it fragrant with myrrh and frankincense and every kind of spice? Look, it's Solomon's carriage surrounded by 60 heroic men, the best of Israel's soldiers. So she's again talking about the smell. When she first started talking about him, when she first met him, she noticed he smells really good. You know, smell is something that in the Old Testament that was used to talk about the presence of God. God wanted in the temple for there to be this incense burning. So when people smelled it, they kind of thought of the presence of God. And so in our, in, even for us, smell triggers memory. You can probably smell something and all of a sudden it just triggers a memory. When I was a little kid, I would get off the bus at my grandparents' house. And many days, my grandmother would make these homemade pizzas, the Chef Boyardee homemade pizzas. You know what I'm talking about. And so every now and then, a couple times a year, I'll ask my wife, hey, can we get one of those and make it? And every single time when I smell it, I think of my grandmother. So smell is a big trigger of memory. And so she sees him and she's thinking, oh, there's that guy that smells so good and I'm gonna marry him. And, and whoo, she's saying, girls, next verse, come out to see King Solomon, young women of Jerusalem. He wears the crown his mother gave him on his wedding day, his most joyous day. She's describing what she feels on their wedding day. When she talks about the warriors and the best fighters in Israel and the way he's coming into the, mar to the wedding ceremony, she's saying, he's going to protect me. I feel safe. Would you just look at him? He's got on that crown his mama gave him. She's saying, this is our wedding day. This is the day that she probably would have dreamed of. The day that 
that when she was a little girl or a young teenager, she's thinking, I want this kind of dress and I want these kind of bridesmaids. And ladies, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have this picture in your mind. And so she's describing, look at what's going on. Here comes my prince. We're going to get married. And in the very next verse, he starts to describe what's going on. He jumps, not from the beginning to the ceremony, not to the reception. He jumps straight to the hotel room that night when he starts talking about getting married. He's saying like, I want to write a song about this. So it tells you where guys' minds are. So in chapter four, it's going to talk a lot about sex in a steamy way in places. You single people, we might have to turn the sprinklers on. You married guys, you're going to be saying, can we have some homework maybe? That'd be great if you could like give us homework after this one. It'd be perfect. Maybe you'll have homework. I don't know. Just listen. We're going to read about not just sex, the way our culture views it, where it's easy and cheap and everywhere. We're going to talk about what God honoring sex looks like. Because that's what's going to be described to us in this story. And I have read the Bible from cover to cover on more than one occasion. And every single time, I have never found any place other than when sex is talked about as being God-honoring than between a husband and a wife. Every single time. If you want to read the Bible cover to cover and you find something different, please come and tell me because I must have missed it. And so we're going to talk about God honoring sex in the context of marriage. That might sound old-fashioned, that might seem weird, but it's biblical and it's God's plan for his people. So here he is, they've gotten to wherever they are, the hotel, the chambers, wherever they went, and he's letting us in on where God honoring sex starts. See, God honoring sex starts way before the bedroom. Guys, that's probably hard for you to think about that, but it it does. And he's going to show us. He's going to let us in on some things that happen on their wedding night. He says to her in chapter 4, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Now, that requires a little explanation. So don't try those lines on your wives. It will not work. Don't say, oh, honey, your hair reminds me of a goat. That just, today it doesn't work. But what he's trying to communicate in their culture with things they understood to be complimentary, this is the first time he would have seen his wife taking down her hair because women didn't take down their hair for anybody but their husband. So this was the very first time that he saw her hair. He wouldn't have known how long it was. He wouldn't have known what it looked like, but she takes down her hair and it's flowing. And it, it just reminds him of a flock of goats running down a hillside. To her, that would have been very complimentary. He looks at her eyes and he says, they're like doves. They're fluttering behind your veil. And then in the day when they didn't have good orthodontics, they didn't have fluoride, they didn't have crest, they, you know, they didn't have uh, floss, 
Not everybody would have had their teeth. And she has her teeth. Not just her teeth, they're white. They're white like, the, like a sheep when it's, all of its dirty wool has been taken off and it's been washed up. So honey, you got some white teeth. Not only do you have white teeth, you've got all of them. <laughs> and they're straight and they match. I mean, this is like, this is like really big sex talk between the two of them. He's like, honey, you got some white teeth. If you remember early on in this story, she struggled with her looks, her beauty. She didn't think she was pretty. She apologized for the way she looked because she didn't look like the way they thought women should look in that day. She was tanned and sunburned because she worked outside. She was thin and muscular in a day where pale and plump was the going thing. And where's the first place he starts? He starts by saying, how beautiful you are. As we experience this new thing together tonight, the first thing I want you to know, he says, you are beautiful. And then he tells her what her eyes look like, what her hair looks like. And he lets her know she is attractive and beautiful. He lets her know there's safety here. He lets her know that what he sees is a beautiful woman. And she takes down her hair, and that night for them was not business as usual. It was the first time that they'd seen each other in that setting. And then he keeps on talking, and he keeps on going south. Here we go. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. What he's doing is just letting her know, I adore you. And this wasn't new talk for him. He had talked to her in this way when they were just dating, before the marriage. This is the way he spoke to her, to help her with her insecurities, to help her see that he cares about her and to know that he adores her. Now, guys, husbands, listen up. We are task-oriented, right? We just want to get things done. Solomon had a choice. Is he going to go into the, the, the hotel room the night of the wedding and say, let's get busy and just tear into it? Or is he going to make sure that she feels secure in his presence, in this new experience for both of them that night? See, guys tend to be so task-oriented that we can have this long day at work where it was stressful, and our wives have a long day at home or at work where it's stressful, and we can walk in the door and say, want to have sex? And they're like, uh, no, it's not how it works. <laughs> guys can be in the middle of a heated argument with their wives, and the argument end, and him say, you want to have sex? And that's when she says, you're a pig. You are just a pig. I was browsing some cards for my wife, and I found this card that said, okay, I'm going to tell you. I found this card that says, I don't always think about sex, and then it says dot, dot, dot. You open it up, and it says, I also think about you naked. I didn't buy that card. I bought a romantic card. I did take a picture and text it to her, though. <laughs> but it's just the way God wired us up. Sex is different for men and women. 
If women had men's sex drive, we would not advance as a culture. We wouldn't get anything done. If men had women's sex drive, there'd only be about 400 people on the planet. We'd never multiply. So guys, it's not just a physical thing. You have to get that in your head. And he takes time and showing us a great example. He takes time connecting with her. He takes time speaking to her. Before any physical intimacy takes place, he started well before they got in the bedroom. And I I know that divorce is a reality. Sometimes it's not avoidable. Sometimes it happens in spite of two godly people trying all that they could try. It still results in divorce sometimes. But it doesn't always have to be that way. Because so many times when I've talked to somebody who has messed up and betrayed the marriage because they went off into a hotel with somebody else or snuck away on a trip with somebody else that wasn't their spouse, it didn't start there. When I would say, how did it get to this, which I've said to several people, nobody ever says, I don't know, we just found ourselves in a hotel one day. That's not where it starts. Where does it start? It starts with conversation. It starts with attraction. And so when a a marriage ends, oftentimes what you hear is, or when a marriage is betrayed, oftentimes what you hear is, well, he just, he made me feel pretty. He spoke to me in ways that my husband hasn't in years. Or he says, she just made me feel important. She just made me feel like she wanted to hear what I had to say. So if in your marriage right now, you feel like the spark is gone, try to just start talking to each other. Now, I know some problems go way beyond that, and it's way deeper than that, but how many could be solved just by starting to look into each other's eyes and talk to each other? And guys, doing the things you did to win her, do those things to keep her engaged in the marriage. It might actually save it. And so Solomon gives us a great example of how that communication should go and the result of it. And so he keeps moving south when he talks about his wife. God-honoring sex starts well before the bedroom. God-honoring sex is passionate. Now, before I read this next verse, there's no shame in giggling and laughing and feeling like, Oh my gosh, that's in the Bible. He said this to her. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. He's seeing his wife without clothes on for the first time, and so he thinks, whoo, I'm thinking of two fawns right now. One one commentator (laughs) said this about this verse. Moving down her body, he next focused on her breasts, objects of male interest that need no explanation. But I'm going to explain this anyway. (laughs) What he's trying to do is give her security. Maybe he thinks of fawns because of youthfulness. Maybe, Maybe he thinks of the perkiness of fawns when they're prancing around the field. I don't know. I think he's probably talking more about his approach. If you wanted to pet a fawn, how would you approach it? You're not going to go, hey, fawn, let me pet you. You're not going to do that. 
You're going to gently approach the fawn if you want to touch it and you want to pet it, right? And so that is probably what he's talking about. He's letting her know you can feel secure. I'm not here just to tear into you. You can feel security in my presence. He's saying to them, saying to her, there is safety here. There's safety with me. And he's trying to let her know that. Because remember, she's insecure. And everybody deals with insecurity on some level. All guys, all ladies, all of us look at our bodies and say, I wish it was, you know, this way, that way. I wish this was reproportioned somewhere else. Everybody does that. And he recognizes that. And he deals with her insecurity in such a gentle way that makes her feel loved, respected, and excited about what's about to happen next. Too many guys get to their wedding night and expect it to be like a porn flick because they let that constant drip of poison into their mind over time. And it's going to be nothing like that. If you're single and you're stuck looking at that junk, it's not going to be anything like that. Those are actors. Those young girls are paid to appear like they have the sex drive of a male. And those guys are paid to treat women like they're nothing but a piece of meat. It's not reality. It's evil through and through. And it's so destructive because there is no passion in it. And it's not just because, it's not just because you're viewing this distorted view of reality physically. Guys, when you're watching that, when you're looking at that, that's somebody's little girl. That's somebody's little boy that are trapped for whatever reason, and they think that's the only answer. And you're watching that, and it distorts your view of a relationship. Almost 90% of men confess to saying, I look at porn. Probably the other 10% lie about it. Looking at porn on a continual basis will cause you to lose the ability to enjoy a real woman, real passion. And you'll miss out because you've got this distorted view. Now, I know there are women that, that look at porn and struggle with that, but, but the, the stats are way, way, way leaning in the other direction. So God gives us this story to show us what real passion looks like. Not that distorted poison on the screen, but real passion. Remember, he hasn't touched her yet. He's just talking to her. He says... Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Now, if you look on a map, um, there is no place called myrrh. If you go on a tour, if you go to Jerusalem, don't ask the tour guide, hey, where's that mountain of myrrh? I want to see that one. It's not a place geographically. He's talking about her body. And he's saying, look, here, here's where I'm going. I just want you to know what's about to happen here. And he says, there is no flaw in you. And she may feel like she doesn't measure up, but he's letting her know. And guys, husbands, part of your job 
is to make her feel secure with you. Wives, part of your job is to make him feel secure with you. Because everything else is going to beat them up. Bosses, teachers, magazines, expectations, all that's going to beat up your husband or wife. You're the one that's to provide security when they're with you. This is when the passion dies for so many couples. It's really, it's really difficult for guys to express themselves. I mean, not when you're dating. Of course, when you're dating, you say anything. You know, it's like, whatever I got to say. I love this woman. And, oh, honey, you're beautiful. I love you. You're great. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with you. And then marriage happens, and somehow the breaks go on. And that gets less and less and less until he feels like, I'm just not attracted to her anymore. It's not long before she looks at him and says, you're gross. Get away from me. Touch me. And it starts because the passion went away. Because two people failed to figure out and to pay attention to the needs of the other. Guys, I'm going to help you out right now. I'm going to take some notes. I'm going to help you out. Let me tell you something you can do. If you feel some spark going out, clean the house. Wash the dishes. Put the kids to bed. Ladies, you're welcome. Guys, let me know how that goes. No, actually, don't let me know how that goes. It's none of my business how it goes. I promise it'll go well. Because then you're communicating on the same level. See, men will go through romance to get sex. Women will go through sex to get the romance. And until everybody gets in sync, your marriage is at risk for losing the spark. And so get in sync with each other. You do things that make him feel important, valued, loved, respected. You do things, guys, that make her feel protected and cherished and adored and loved. And when you get those two things in sync, you can have a God-honoring marriage that gets to enjoy God-honoring sex. God-honoring sex is passionate. L listen to this passion as he speaks to her. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel on your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and fragrance, fragrance of your perfume more than any spice? So he's telling her, you turn me on. You are beautiful. Like, you're amazing. And he just keeps pouring that on and pouring that on. And then he says in verse 11, your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb. My bride, milk and honey are under your tongue. Milk and honey was a term used to describe abundance. It was, used to, it was used by God when he promised the Israelite nation, when they came out of slavery in Egypt, they were going to this new land, this promised land. And he said, this place flows with milk and honey. It means it's productive. It means they're secure. It means there's abundance. It means there's beauty. And he said, you know what I found under your tongue? Milk and honey. That means kissing. And this was a couple thousand years before France existed. So 
I mean, but Hebrew kissing just doesn't have the same, doesn't have the same uh, sound to it. But that's what he's talking about. We are passionately kissing, and what I found when I kissed you is milk and honey. In other words, my feelings for you are getting even deeper, and this is better than I ever imagined. Now, single people, teenagers, this is where you can roll your eyes at me probably. This is where you're going to think, okay, you got to be kidding. You know, this is like, it's like 2016. Give me a break. That kind of kissing was reserved for the wedding night. Uh-oh. <laughs> I, remember, I remember I had this couple come to me. They were college kids. And they talked about their relationship and how holy they wanted it to be. And they decided they were not going to kiss like that until their wedding night. And I was like, that's pretty good. I don't know if I could do that. I didn't do that. And they made it. Why is that so important? Our bodies were designed by God. And our bodies are designed to be revved up. And that kind of passion between two people does nothing more than rev them up and get them going. That's like first gear. We're designed to keep moving. We're designed to go all the way. We're designed to swing for the fence and hit the home run. That's how God designed us. And so you think you can handle it when you can't, so we need boundaries. Because what happens, people end up saying, oh man, how did we get here? How did that happen? But if you rewind, you will see Bad decisions physically all along the way when somebody's like, I just did something I wish I'd never done. That's like, and then saying, I didn't mean to do it. That's like getting in your car, starting it up, putting it in gear and hitting the accelerator and saying, oh, I didn't mean to go anywhere. I don't mean for the car to move, but you did all the things to make it move. And so what we can learn from this story is there are things that two people can do to and with each other that have this logical progression to the next step. And he's saying, hey, this is great. We're going to go to the next step. I mean, God made you for your desires to go to the next step. And he goes on to say to her, as they're about to consummate this marriage, as they're about to experience love in a way they never had before, almost in a play-by-play, -play, and he says to her, what he's getting ready to say to her, in essence, is you've saved yourself for this moment. He gives her this great compliment by saying this. You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed in a sealed fountain. Wouldn't it be great, ladies, you single ladies, if that's how people gossiped about you? If guys who went out with you, that's all they had to say? That if they made an advance... They would say, she is like sealed up. Ain't nothing happening with her. She's got her standards. Wouldn't it be great if that was the story they would tell? Wouldn't it be great if that was the gossip about you? If you're dating somebody, listen to me, ladies, single ladies, you dating somebody and they're pressuring you and they keep pushing and they don't let up, dump them, break up with them. You can tell them your pastor said to. Because why would you want to progress in a relationship with somebody who has no respect for you and clearly no respect for God's word? Wouldn't you rather, that should give an indication of how the marriage is going to go. 
So why not let yourself be attracted to somebody who respects you, who respects God's word? Now, people make mistakes. People goof up. I'm not talking about a momentary lapse of judgment and a mistake. I'm talking about a continual pressure to go to the next level. So he lets her know, I'm proud of the fact that you are like a sealed fountain. And what she starts to say next, you need to remember back at the beginning of the story what she said to her friends when she said, don't awaken love before it's time. And then the very first word out of her mouth in the next sentence after he said, you are like a garden that's locked up, she says this word, awake. Awake, north wind, and come, south wind. Blow on my garden that its fragrance may spread everywhere. Let my love come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Whew. I'm not even going to explain that one. I'm not even going to go into that. There's no way. You just figure that one out. That one's homework. Go figure out what that means. But what they're using is very poetic language to describe this very holy act between two people. Between a married couple. They're using language that's not demeaning, that's not dirty sounding. They're using language to describe this holy act the way God intended it to be. Not shameful, not hidden in the shadows, not something you don't want your parents to find out about or your friends to find out about, but this godly act that God created for a man and a woman to enjoy. And that's why it's so tragic when people choose to give their body away without that kind of passion, without that kind of commitment, without that kind of spiritual connection. Because God-honoring sex, not only does it start before the bedroom, not only is it passionate, God-honoring sex is holy. So don't throw away that which is holy for just some physical act. I did college ministry for 12 years, and that's a time in a person's life when they really struggle with that. So when I struggled with that, when I had difficulty, and we're humans. But I can remember this one young girl that talked to Cinda and I who had gone too far, who had made a mistake. And I can remember the tears as they rolled down her face. We were at this retreat and just something hit her that, oh my gosh, look what I've done. And she confessed that to us. And she said, I can't believe I let it go to this. And we talked to her about God's love and forgiveness and how he makes people pure again. And she was okay, but that night, she was devastated that she had missed the holiness of sex in the way God intended it. In the book, The Mingling of Souls, Matt Chandler says, sex is a gift from God. It's meant to nurture intimacy in a marriage and forge a bonding of souls. And that's what's going on with Solomon and Mrs. Solomon. This forging of two souls together who have waited, who respect each other, who feel at ease in each other's presence, and he has approached everything in a gentle way. And they consummate the marriage. And then you turn over to chapter five. And I'm not going to read the beginning part, 
because we're running out of time. But, but essentially what he says is like, just imagine him kicked back in bed with his hands behind his head like this with a cigarette in his mouth. That's what's happening. And he's like, whoo, man, this was something else. This was great. And then this other voice speaks. This other voice was in the room. It's not a person. That's bad. Don't do that. There's not another person in the room. There's another voice who speaks. Now, some commentators say it's later, but some say this other voice that was with them was God. And here's what God said. Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Everybody wants that. To enjoy something God ordained without the shame, without the insecurity, without the guilt. For some, it involves waiting. For some, it involves backing up and romancing your spouse that you're with. For some, it involves knowing what Christ has done for you. Because when I talk about what I've talked about today, it brings up feelings of guilt for you. And it makes you feel like, I can't believe I messed up. I can't believe I'm in another marriage. I can't believe I'm where I am. The beauty of Christ is he takes you right where you are and you can start right there even if the goof up was last night. He makes you new. And if you are a follower of Christ and you feel guilt right now, here's what you need to know. Over and over in Scripture, it lets us know that when we're in Christ, there is no condemnation. You do not have to walk in guilt. And beyond that, he can restore your purity. He can make you whole again. He can make the the marriage you're in right now holy and pure and lovely. Remember this verse from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone and the new is here. He lets us all start over. And for you, if you're single, it'll happen. The right time, at the right place, with the right person, and it will be a holy thing. Don't compromise before that and settle for less. Let's pray. God, thank you for this challenging word that makes us laugh, uh, maybe even makes some feel guilty. God, I pray that, that you speak to everyone's heart and let them know that you take them right where they are. And God, that they, they take steps to mend and grow their marriage. And for those single people who are in a season of waiting, God, I just pray that you would give them confidence and courage and strength to say no. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.